Hello, everyone. I'm Heather Ward, the SCA's Director of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Lectures Podcast. Today's episode is part of our World of Coffee Lecture Series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at the event every year. Since you're with us today, I'm guessing you're into podcasts. Do you know about Recap? It's our new podcast offering a brief overview of recent coffee developments in less than five minutes. You can subscribe by following the link in today's show notes. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the 2019 World of Coffee in Berlin. Don't miss this year's lecture series that takes place in Warsaw in June. Visit worldofcoffee.org for more information. If you'd like to follow along, you can find the slides for this lecture linked in the show notes below. Okay, let's get started. We're going to jump right in. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim Elena Ionescu. I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer for the Specialty Coffee Association. Before I get started with a a few short slides, sort of a a background introduction to what we're talking about when we talk about this coffee price crisis, I'll uh, just give a second for all of the panelists to introduce themselves also. Good morning. Uh, My name is Colleen Anunu. I am an officer on the board of directors for the Specialty Coffee Association. And I've uh, been working in the coffee industry for many years as both a high-quality buyer and now working for Fairtrade USA, uh, advancing sustainability models for for roasters in the United States. I'm here with my esteemed panel to talk about the price crisis today. First, we have Peter Kettler, who's the senior manager of coffee for Fairtrade International. Peter has so much experience in the coffee industry coming from the trading side and the roasting side. Trading? He did trading. And roasting, he formed an organization called Radio Lifeline for connecting producers uh, in hard-to-reach areas. And we can't wait to hear his perspective this morning. We also have Joanna Alm from Drop Coffee Roasters in Sweden. She's been with Drop Coffee since 2010. She is a multiple champion of world, world roasting placed very high for many years in a row, and it's the Sweden national champion for, for roasting for many years. And she just released an amazing book two days ago, two days ago, called Manifest for Better Coffee. So Joanna's got a lot of awesome experience in the quality side. And then we have Mr. Juan Luis Barrios from Finca La Merced in Guatemala. And Juan Luis is on the board of directors as well for the SCA. He has been on the board of directors for the SCAA. He has been on the board of directors for Ana Cafe in Guatemala. And he will just school you on production economics today. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to hearing the discussion among the panelists. But um, before we get to that, I did want to take a few minutes and give a little bit of background just to make sure that we all have all of the same information going into this discussion. So when we're talking about this coffee price crisis, in in some sort of graphic sense, what we're talking about is this. We're talking about the decline in the commodity futures market price for coffee, most acutely over the past year or so. In September of 2018, it reached a level, or maybe it was late August of 2018, it reached this threshold of US 100 cents per pound or a dollar per pound of coffee. And that was a a psychologically significant threshold for a lot of people in coffee who um, hadn't maybe been thinking about it on a day-to-day basis before, thinking about the the price of coffee and what it meant to the 
to people all across the, the coffee value chain. Now, of course, there were many, many people working in coffee who were thinking about it prior to August of 2018, who had seen this general decline, who had been sounding an alarm about it, and not only about the lowering or the, the falling price for coffee on the futures market, but also about the volatility, these up and down swings that make it very difficult to plan for the future and that don't reflect the realities of coffee production. The costs to produce coffee or any of the local context, this is a, a global price that isn't reflective of any individual producer's production costs or, or needs or, or conditions, but yet it's relevant to most people in the world in some way, in some fashion or another. And I hope that we'll get to that today. So when we're talking about the price crisis and, and, and what's the problem, you know, I think that I'll begin here because the problem is, is this, is that this red line. But you know, it, it begs this question, is this a crisis? And why are we using this language of crisis to talk about it? And, you know, to my thinking, this language of crisis is reflective of that moment where we began to give this topic an extra level of attention to what we had in, in previous years. You know, and not speaking for everyone, because for many people, again, it feels like this is something that maybe many of you in this room have been working on for years now and advocating for and has, has dominated your consciousness. But it wasn't dominant as an industry issue. And as soon as we hit that dollar mark, it began to become a topic of conversation for players in the industry, for small roasting companies, for even you know, popular press, media outlets, who began to see that, that price and connect it to issues that were outside of coffee. And to come to you know, the Specialty Coffee Association, for example, asking questions about what's going on in coffee, and probably to, to you know, others also, to certifiers and to traders, saying, why are we in the situation that we're in? How did we get here? What's so different about coffee now? And of course, the answer to that, again, is nuanced because it isn't a, a momentary shift. And for that reason, we can't lay blame for it. We can't say that, you know, there's one factor that we can pinpoint that sparked this you know, that sparked this crisis. And because there's no single spark to it, there's also no single solution to it. But in order to understand, you know, how we get here and, and whether or not it's a crisis, I did want to go back just a little bit to the last time we used the word crisis to talk about coffee. And that was in around 2002. So this graph looks familiar. It looks like I just took the graph that I put up there two slides ago and I changed the colors a little bit. But in this case, you can see along the bottom of the on the x-axis, that we're going from January of 1997 instead of 2017 to July of 2002 instead of, you know, March of 2019. But you see the same up and down volatility, and you see the same downward trend. And in this case, the prices got much lower. The, you know, the lowest levels in, in the coffee commodity futures market were lower. But at the same time, I will note that these are not adjusted prices. These prices are not adjusted for inflation. And we did call it a crisis. The graph comes from a document called The Global Coffee Crisis, A Threat to Sustainable Development, written by the executive director of the International Coffee Organization at the time in 2002. So, in many ways, and for many people who've been in the coffee industry for some time now, this moment feels familiar, and the language feels familiar. And, and you know, to many people, it can feel disheartening. 
that we're in another crisis, that it's been almost 20 years now and we're facing the same sort of realities and using the same language to talk about the situation. And it leads us to wonder, you know, is it possible for us to do anything different? Why are we here again? And for this audience, what's the role of specialty coffee in the past 17 years, going from the last crisis to this one? And what's the role of specialty coffee going to be from this crisis moment moving forward so that we're not here again in another 17 years or 10 years or 27 years or, or you know, ideally <laughs> ever. This isn't a cyclical, this isn't a, a pattern that we continue to repeat forever. And it was, you know, the, the role of specialty coffee was different in the last time of co coffee price crisis. This graph that I'm showing you doesn't go all the way, or it does, this is the one that goes all the way back to 2002. And you can see that at the time, this is a chart from the United States, so not globally representative. But you can see how much growth we have seen in specialty coffee since that time. You know, the, to me, the most significant one is that daily drinker number. Because in 2001, there were people who were occasionally drinking specialty coffee. This was not a brand new concept or term or category in the market. But it wasn't, um, it didn't have the same sort of, it hadn't pervaded the market in the way that you can see that it has now if we can note the growth from 14% daily coffee consumption in, of specialty coffee in 2001 to now a full you know, 41% of, um, of coffee drinkers are reporting that they drink specialty coffee on a daily basis. And so we have been part of the, the specialty coffee was seen as a way to respond to the last price crisis because it was believed that if you could, if we could increase the value of coffee by demonstrating that it tasted better, it had better quality, cup quality characteristics, then that would enable us to charge more for the coffee at the retail level, and then to deliver some of that value back to producers and thereby raise their incomes. And you know, this was, a, a, again, a strategy that's documented in a lot of the meeting notes from that time when groups of people would come together, leaders from the industry, from the public sector, from nonprofit organizations, from you know, donor agencies trying to respond to that coffee price crisis. Specialty coffee was seen as a way in which to, to address this, a strategy that we could use to, to get ourselves and to get the entire value chain out of this sort of low value place and into a, a more stable, higher value place. And so that was, you know, that was the, the theory and we can see how much it's, how much specialty coffee has grown, but we can see also from the 2018 coffee barometer that despite the fact that we've increased the value of coffee substantially, much of that growth, 90% of the value of coffee remains or it stays or 10% of the value of, of coffee only stays in the country where it's produced, and 90% of the total value of a cup of coffee, a roasted pound of coffee, however it is that you are, are purchasing, the final consumer obtains that final coffee product. 90% of that value is captured in the processing, roasting, brewing, you know, preparation piece. That 10% that stays in the country of origin isn't even a figure that is specific to producers that accounts for all of the activity in occurring in a coffee producing, in a coffee producing country. So while we have seen enormous growth, most of that growth, I think it is safe to say, 
even in specialty coffee, because this is not uh, this doesn't break out specialty from all coffee, has been occurring in in consuming countries and not been shared equally with the producing side of the value chain. And you know that just causes me to reflect on the fact that you know if this is sort of a prototypical image of a, a coffee of specialty coffee and what it might look like, you know all of the things that this evokes about the environment in which it's which coffee is made, the quality of the ingredients that go into it, the craftsmanship of the person who prepares the beverage. You know, I wonder whether we're doing as good a job of recognizing the value and rewarding the craftsmanship of the people who are on the other end or who are producing the, the coffee that makes it to that final beautiful latte art cup. And this is all of, all of this thinking underpins the SCA's price crisis response initiative, which is what I stand here on the floor of this lecture room uh, representing an initiative of the association living within the sustainability center. I mentioned earlier that I'm the sustainability officer. While the, the initiative was launched in this moment of crisis, you know, what we know also is that it's not a one year easy to solve problem. So I've laid out some of the complexity here. I'm going to pass it over to the panel to explore some of the uh, nuances of this issue, some of the, the ways in which it affects different populations differently, in which some different perspectives. And I look forward to a good discussion. So thank you very much. So our panel is first going to focus on the profitability equation and a little bit more about uh, farmer profitability and what different models uh, are doing to try and, and, and impact profitability at the farm level. Then we'll talk a little bit more about this value distribution piece and some of the ideas around transparency and opacity that currently exist within, within the coffee market and particularly in the specialty market, as Kim had said, that there's, there's a little bit of a, of a misnomer. There's, there's a little bit of an issue with the way that we're describing the prices and the value of our coffee and the distribution back to, back to producers. And then we'll talk about how to build consensus around that or some ideas around why specialty, not how can specialty coffee lead, but why should specialty coffee lead. Um, and then we'll open it up to the audience. So, so thanks for bearing with us. But I do want to start with you, Juan Luis, and your experience as a coffee producer whose bottom line is severely impacted by the sea market. Even though you may or may not tender your contracts to your buyers um, on the sea market. You, also, you work in a community where a number of your neighbors do and why that has an impact on you. We know that price is a very important but obviously only one factor of the profitability equation. There's also uh, productivity, there are costs that we need to account for. We hear often and we've even heard this weekend uh, from some, some well-known coffee economists and people that are working in the trade that ultimately we need to continue to work on productivity on a, on a small farm basis, right, in order to offset a lot of those costs and the variable costs. But you have a different experience, you have a different perspective on this, one that actually has impacted your balance sheet. So I would love for you to sort of give, give an example of what's happening at La Merced. All right, thank you. So. Again, basic ag 101 is 
increase productivity per hectare and you should be fine. And in coffee, we have followed sort of like that same dodge, you know, a lot of the help that goes back to producers is nope, increase productivity, increase quality. And the sort of like the underlying message is you should be fine. So, you know, I just finished my harvest last Tuesday, which was like super late, a, a month and a half late, thanks to climate change. And thanks to labor conditions and, you know, it started raining early again because of climate change. So the worker said, no, 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 I got to go now work on my piece of land. And, you know, it's thanks, but it's, I got to go do mine. So, you know, I, my harvesters went down to half, so my crop extended. So that, that's just to highlight a couple of the other issues that are going around and that we have to deal with in farms. So anyways, I finished my harvest. And obviously one of the things that we have been doing is trying to increase productivity per hectare. I mean, that's you know, one of the things you have to do to lower your production costs. So you know, working extensively on that, so I compared my 2017 harvest versus my 2019 harvest. And I've been able to increase by 38% my, my harvest. So you say, hey, awesome, excellent. I did have to increase my inputs because you know things don't happen magically and I'm producing more coffee, I need to feed the, the trees more. So I actually increased my inputs by 11.6%. But ideally, you know, I'm going to be able to offset that with you know, more, more production. And yes, I was able to lower my cost of cherry. And for this exercise, you know, just did it to cherry so I could compare how a small producer, if he was implementing the exact same practices I was, you know, literally like right across the gate, you know, what his cost would be. So we were able to lower my cost of cherry by 13.1%. Excellent. If I was selling my coffee to the you know, current system, the way it works, like basically all the small producers around me, they essentially sell cherry at Farmgate, which is typically tied to the sea because of where we are, higher elevation, good quality. You know, we get paid a premium a differential based on the sea market. And generally, a good differential for Guatemala is going to be 30 cents. So use that, using that. So I took the May 31st, 2017 sea market price plus the 30 cents and compared it to the May 31st, 2019 plus the 30 cents. The price dropped by 15.5%. So what that means is even though I lowered my production cost, I'm actually losing more money now than I was in 2017. The only reason why I'm able to actually be here and, and tell you about this is because I untethered myself from the sea market you know, several years ago. But the small producers next to me, they don't have necessarily that access to market. And they are the ones who are feeling this pain, even though they have good agronomical practices, even though they have good quality. And that is one of, it's just, to me, is a perfect example of one of the flaws that we have currently in our value system. Again, towards, oh yeah, quality is going to save everything. Productivity is going to save everything. It's not. It's not. Peter? One of the economic benefits of fair trade as a, as a certification scheme for producers in a production environment, but then also in the trade environment, is the safety net of the fair trade minimum price. And for coffee, that fair trade minimum price 
varies based on whether it's washed Arabica or natural Arabica or Robusta. Uh, but the one that we often talk about for uh, specialty coffee is the washed Arabica minimum price of $1.40. And Kim had mentioned that there's this psychological shift that happened when the market crossed the dollar line. But in reality, for fair trade farmers and people, more farmers that can sell into the fair trade market, that minimum price has been in effect since 2016. And that's at least two harvest cycles in Central America. And there's already contracting going on in Peru for a third cycle. And we haven't, there wasn't a call to action once that dropped below the fair trade minimum price. And I think maybe some of that reason is that minimum price might not be fully understood by the specialty market. And I would love for you to talk about how the, how the minimum, what the, what the idea behind that minimum price is and where fair trade is, wants to take that concept moving forward. Okay, before I answer your question, Sitting here this morning, it, it was really the dynamics of what's happening in this hall this morning really are illustrative of, I think, the challenge in the coffee industry. So as we're sitting here, we can hear these cheers on the other end of the hall for the magic that baristas are doing by putting you know these elements together and putting them into a cup and whoever wins the championship is going to probably, you know, get sponsorship deals. And we even have a magazine just dedicated to that end of the spectrum, right? Which is great. That's fantastic. And then between there and here, we've got probably a couple thousand people talking about different elements of the trade. Just listen. Right? Everybody's really excited. Everybody's excited about, you know, trading green coffee or their next equipment or their next acquisition. And then there's 30 of us sitting in this room with black curtains, already, you know, members of this tribe that recognize that this is a problem. And I think that this is fundamental to the dynamics of what the problem is in the industry, right? And I'm not, I'm not um, taking anything away from anybody else in the industry. I just think that we have to change the dynamics so that maybe on this end of the hall, we have a celebration of producers and the magic that they're putting into the cup, right? So that that's a bookend. Anyway. So the fair trade minimum price, there's a review every couple of years. We're going through our coffee standard review right now. And basically what we do is take into consideration the cost of production across the board in every region. And, and I think that there's a lot of misnomer and a lot of mistaken uh, information about the fair trade minimum price. One of the assumptions is, is that if you're a roaster or if you're a retailer and you pay a fair trade minimum price, problem solved, right? Farmers are on the road to prosperity. We can pat ourselves on the back for paying, you know, an above market price in, in the current market conditions. But really, you know, you have to compare it to minimum wage. You know, anybody in the U.S., for example, you know, you can't support a family of four or a family of six or a family of eight on a minimum wage. And that's what we're talking about. It's, it's a minimum basic safety net, especially in periods like we're seeing now, 
of, of depressed prices. Now, some people say, well, why don't you just raise the minimum price? Well, we're already 50, 50 cents out of the market. The, the, one of the unique features of Fairtrade International is that we're 50% owned by producers. They have a stake in governance, in setting prices, and they're telling us, well, we're going to lose market share if you know, we set the market price to $2 or $2.40. So one of the things that we're, we started looking at is this assumption within the industry of $1.40 is, is the magic number. And so we started this work around living income, which is really, it's too long to go into here, but we started in our cocoa uh, supply chain and we looked at farmers in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana who were fair trade certified. And so we did a study just like where that is in comparison to the World Bank poverty line and where an actual sustainable quality of life is. And we found that 58% of farmers in certified co-ops are living in conditions of extreme poverty, right? 32% are living just at, this, at the level of poverty while 10% actually get a living income. So, you know, based on that, we created a, a coalition of, of stakeholders within the industry, governments, other NGOs, and the decision was, well, if that's the target, if we need to get up there, a logical step is to then raise the fair trade minimum price. So we took it from $1,900 a metric ton to $2,400. According to all of the studies, the living income price in cocoa um, should be $3,500 a metric ton. So there's still this huge gap, right? So we're talking about baby steps. And as everybody here said, it's up to us to form a consensus. No one organization, no one company, no one country or government is going to be able to solve this. Joanne, I would love to hear your perspective on, as, as a quality-focused roaster, as a roaster that pays very high premiums for high-quality coffee, thinking about some of the dynamics that Juan Luis has talked about, the challenges that he faces with profitability and some of the, the underlying assumptions and the trade models and you know, how we actually can, can distribute value back in a way that covers production costs or supports a dignified living income for producers. Is that any type of purchasing strategy or price setting strategy that you've ever engaged with or that you're the market in which you exist, are you seeing those kinds of strategies or how often do you have these conversations together about mm. price setting? Mm. No, I think in, in specialty coffee in general, like people want, people want quality and they want sustainability. Like that's the, okay, then I buy specialty coffee. That's what you kind of expect of when you purchase that product. You, you expect us to do a good job and to, to deliver that uh, to the farmers. They know that we are so professional, so we will look after that. And the reality is that uh, we, we don't always do. Like I have so many samples sent to me like every week from uh, importers saying like, this is specialty coffee, but on a really good price. And it's like for me, when I started traveling maybe, yeah, 12 years ago to, to Origin, and I, I just felt uh, 
confused. Like, how should I, as a, uh, as, as a roaster or as a green coffee buyer, be able to make a decision on what's, what's right? Like, normally, the first time you come there, you simplify things, and things are very easy and, and clear. And then you understand, like, the, yeah, the level of it in, in every... Uh, on every farm, in every region, like everywhere, it's it's different. And just like you're you're rising, like it's nowhere you can set. Like this is it. This is fair, black or white. So uh, what I have done is that I have, like I'm just like okay, I'm I'm not the one who have this like uh, experience. Just like most green coffee buyers and importers, we don't have an education in nor sustainability or trading or economy. Um, so I took contact to a lawyer in import and export within UN working on sustainability and wrote up like the checklist and guidelines for individual countries, what are the risks uh, that we're continuously like fo following up. And that's like speaking, yeah, speaking to many people like me that are out and buying green coffee and like we have been so crazy focused on quality but what I do think is like even as important is that we're focused on laology uh, that we're going back year on year and like that's a little bit of a something we have have created where we're just like looking for the tastiest coffee on the table but what's happening to to the people to the individuals and this is just like it's nothing it's nothing fantastic that I'm doing. Like, I could do a way bigger job and I want to do a way bigger impact. Uh, but it's more, it's like the minimum of what we're doing in the specialty coffee industry, I think, could be, could be more. It's our responsibility as, as a green coffee buyer to, to look at this and look at the, yeah, try to narrow down the actual cost. And if we should be specialty coffee, like, then we are the ones that are meant to do the best job out there in terms of pricing and inspire people. And yeah, I'm not sure that's always the case. Just have a follow-up question to that. So it sounds like you're, you have long-term relationships with some of your, the producers that you're purchasing from and that you're also being offered, uh, offered samples from importers that you know, are trying to sell you more of their relationships, right? and you are checking their offers against your checklist, um, indicators that, you, that are important to your business ethos and that you have sort of made a business case out of that I can't mm -hmm. accept this if you don't give me that information. First, my question is how willing are the importers to give you some of that data and to, to help you uncover some of that data? Is it readily available or does it take time and how, how do you verify whether or not that's true? Mm. No, so when, like, in terms of, like, my own checklist, I, I visit all the producers I'm buying from just out of, I don't trust to do it any other way, or I'm a control freak, or I don't know, and it gives me a bigger, bigger meaning and a bigger purpose. So I, that I do on my own. Uh, but I think that always, like, in terms of, even if you use, like, I use... Uh, both importers in some cases and exporters in some cases. And then it's like, it's, it's your right to know the, uh, the transparency in terms of pricing of the product. And it's your responsibility that you know what the farmer has been paid 
for the coffee you're you're buying from an importer and like this is never i understand it's it's a lot of bumps and that it's itchy and it's uh, conflict on the market and and all of that but like that is your responsibility like if you're going to sell a product further it's it's up to you to make sure that that product is what it should be and same goes for the in that case importer um and there are some fantastic uh, initiatives and like working with the importer I, I praise like they they do this full time they can have this on top of the list they can do big scale and they can like really impact and what you can do as a customer to them is to actually this is important for me like I need to know this and use your customer power I think in the United States you know that's the market that I'm most familiar with and and I don't I don't I don't claim to know much about the the specialty buying in Europe but in the United States there's a conversation around exactly this we need to know what the, at least the FOB price was paid to a cooperative or to a grower or to an exporter and if possible definitely you know, further upstream to understand what was paid to the grower. And there's an understand that difference. And a lot of the response has been from those importers, those specialty importers. I can't give you that information. I understand why you're asking for it. But if I told you it, it's too complicated. I don't think you can make it actionable. And there's a barrier that's being placed there between, you I mean, on one hand, you're saying it's, it's your right, it's your responsibility as a buyer. We're looking for these other indicators. We want to make sure worker welfare. We want to make sure, you know, n not, not promoting negative externalities in the environment, in production environments. But we're not able to get some of this pricing data. And I want to ask Juan Luis, is FOB a complicated scenario you know, to talk about, and Peter too, is FOB a good indicator or how, how can buyers make that actionable? Yeah, FOB is definitely um, a, a good indicator. Most, also depends on which coffee growing country you're from. There's different nuances on, on how exporting is, is done, but in general, some of those costs are relatively flat. I mean, they don't fluctuate that much. I mean, there's a internal transportation cost. There's a dry milling cost. In some cases, there's a wet milling cost. There's going to be slight variations, but they're going to be relatively stable. They may increase a little bit over time. But yes, you can use the FOB as an indicator, at least. But again, my, my recommendation would be, if you are a, a, a roaster, an importer, a green coffee buyer, is drilled down to that level is how much is the farmer actually getting paid i mean it's the information is available and you should be able to to a certain degree demand it and luckily there is open competition and there's other you know green <laughs> coffee vendors eventually somebody is going to willingly and especially with all the talk that we have now on transparency and pushing towards transparency, eventually somebody's going to say, yes, I'm going to step up to the plate and I'm going to show these numbers. And hopefully, just like it happened in the last crisis, where there was a specialty 
uh, coffee roaster and they said, yes, we know what the minimum, uh, what the cost of production is. We're going to pay a minimum price above that for this year, for the harvest after that and the harvest after that. I will ask you to, you know, have these quality standards and, and comply with some of these other, you know, environmental and, and social issues, but are you willing to do a deal? And those are direct conversations with, with producers. And yeah, I'll step up. I'll do it. I'll do a deal. You know, I, I, I can, I can forecast out. I know my cost of production is going to be covered. And if that was done back then when there, we didn't have the access to information that we have now, I mean, there's no reason why this shouldn't happen now and quickly. I mean, it took several years, 20 years ago. Now it should, I mean, we should have already done this. So again, you know, it, it's definitely, definitely doable. It's a little bit different in the fair trade international system because we only deal with cooperatives, right? So it's a little bit hard to trace it back to the original farm. But what we're doing or what we're starting to see is that like in the fair trade system now, 50% of fair trade coffee goes through exporters now. That's grown exponentially probably in the last 10 years or so. And these exporters now, I just held a, a forum in Amsterdam two weeks ago to try to, attract, try to address some what we call unfair practices, rogue trading within the system. And what we're starting to see is that exporters are starting to charge exorbitant FOB charges, which are like way beyond the established, right? The other, the other Im and so then that gets deducted. Um, the other thing that's starting to happen is that we're starting to see consolidation in the market, you know, at, at, the, at the roaster and retail level. And now these larger multinationals are starting to demand net terms of up to 320, 360 days, right? So in that case, traders then sell that invoice to a third-party broker. And there's a fee associated with that that gets passed down to the farmer as another deduction rather than as a cost of business. So we're seeing all of these impacts that are again affecting farmers even in the current market that aren't being really recognized throughout the rest of the supply chain. Yeah. Now I just want to comment quickly on that. Like the, uh, that the FOB prices, I don't think they are, like it, it, it's not perfect to, to compare, like it's it's something, uh, but like, yeah, without having the farm gate price as well or having something else, it doesn't really tell. But it's more is like it's a starting point where we can use our customer power to impact, and we just need to be like very open and humble and understand that okay, in Kenya to Ethiopia, it's it's very different, and in every single case it is different but at least it's a starting point where we can look at like compare or rather choose not to compare to the sea market price look at the transaction guide and like start to look at uh, something uh, for the last two weeks i've been in conversation and, and phone calls with this reporter from the washington post who's down in Guatemala right now investigating the coffee price crisis. And of course he's looking at fair trade cooperatives as well. And one of the things that he, that he has been talking to me about is he ran into some farmers that showed him that they had a fair trade certified 
uh, uh, certification, and they're only receiving 90 cents for their coffee, whereas the fair trade minimum price is $1.40. So to your point about, well, it's complicated, you know, it, it is a little bit complicated because the $1.40 minimum price is for finished co processed coffee, right? Green coffee. There's also a, a difference in that the fair trade minimum price is in pounds and farmers get paid in quintales. Right, so there's that conversion rate. There's the conversion between farmers getting paid in cherry versus finished coffee. So there are all of these nuances, plus the cooperative may have a pre-financing loan that they have to pay back. There's milling costs, things like that. So, you know, without actually looking at the paper trail, it's really hard to determine how much the farmer gets paid, and you have to do a lot of different calculations, but there should be transparency built into the system. Agreed, and not to mention when a farmer is selling into the cooperative at, at, at the copio, at the buying station, that doesn't automatically mean it has a market destination with a fair trade contract, right? And oftentimes in cooperative environments, you'll see that there's an end of year payment or a dividend, which also needs to get. Same with, you know, sometimes with premiums for direct contracts, right? There's a, there's a baseline price and then there's a quality premium that will get distributed back. So yeah, it is complicated. Doesn't mean that it shouldn't be a target. Something that we need to include in our dialogues, in our discussions, our community discussions, and our sector-wide discussions as well. And that sort of brings us to this, this concept around, you know, how can we, how do we move forward and the consensus that we need to build. So yesterday in a discussion on the coffee price crisis, there was a, a question of, you know, why isn't, where's the pressure coming from and why isn't there pressure for roasters and importers to be sharing this information and why why aren't consumers being active? And I think we came around on this and we decided that consumers actually think they are being active. We're actively telling them stories of high quality coffee and sustainability through quality. And as you say, you go and visit farms and you look at the reality and, and all you see is a one, one capture, one screen capture of a beautiful environment surrounded by all the shit. And we don't show the shit. <laughs> Which is, you know, we don't want people to be, you know, having negative associations with, with coffee, but we do need to be able to tell, better finesse the story to, to be able to incite a different type of pressure and purchasing behavior. So within that, I want to know from your perspective how we can move forward as an industry, which often pits high quality against fair trade or certifications in general, or high quality coffee against mass market coffee, like the, the major commercial players that are also buying 80 points and above, right? So has this sort of segregation of us versus them really impeded our progress? How do we come around and build that consensus? Why does specialty need to lead on this? It's, obviously, it's, it's a tough question, but one of the advantages that you do have in specialty is you do have differentiation. So through differentiation, you can be a market leader. 
and by being a market leader, which is, again, I'm going to use the same example 20 years ago. It's what ended up happening. Yes, unfortunately, the Guatemala lost 35% of coffee growing area because you know they did not have that quality coffee that you know that was that the market was requiring. But that was again that was a decision based on the final product. It had essentially not a whole lot to do with the C. It was based on your cost of production. And again, it was one company that stepped up to the plate and decided to be a leader, do something proactively to try and solve the crisis. And consensus is good, but we're still going to need someone to step up to the plate and act. And most likely it will come out of somebody in this building. Again, because specialty is, in the end, you know, a leader. Yeah, no, I can only second that. Like, it's uh, us who can inspire the rest of the market. Like, we're meant to do coffee better than the commodity market, for example. And, like, I also think it can be a key with having, like, yeah, a broader specialty market down to 80 on board as well. Like, then talk about what an impact you might be able to do. So I don't think that we should, like, we maybe more than ever actually need to be, because we can look at individual and small solutions and like even use this at branding or taking opportunities of this, but like if we want to make something real, like it's now that maybe specialty coffee as a community can do something together and yeah, and, and create a change. So my goal is to work myself out of a job. Right. I mean, if I'm doing my job successfully, there is no longer any need for certifications. There's no longer a need for a minimum price. The, the whole system recognizes the value of everyone that contributes to it, especially farmers. I think that in order to really move it forward, we need to change the conversation from what's ethically right to a business case, because that's what's going to resonate with everybody, right? I mean, as it exists now, farmers are subsidizing the rest of the coffee industry. They can't even meet the cost of production, right? So all of this is based on farmers being waking up every day and saying yes. Mm. Once they start saying no, everybody's screwed, mm. right? So we, we have to start addressing this as a fundamental existential crisis within the industry, not something that's just going to, you know, in six months, oh, the price will go back up again. These kinds of price volatilities now are going to become more long-term because of improvements that Brazil is making in production and efficiency and also Vietnam, also the, the accelerating effects of climate change. And we're seeing a whole generation of potential coffee farmers being disincentivized um, by this current crisis. As language is really important in specialty coffee, I think that it's maybe also important that we start to change the conversation. I don't know, for example, what sustainability means anymore. I really don't. I, I have no idea what that means. There are so many, like somebody screws in an LED light bulb and it's a, it's a sustainability initiative. It's not, you know, a, a cost-saving thing. It's like, I, I don't know what it means. Back in the 1970s, there, there started to be a movement for natural foods. And, you know, it was a thing that was ill-defined, but it was in protest against 
processed foods by big multinationals, right? Then big multinationals said, oh, there's a market segment for this. So all of a sudden you started to see on cereal boxes and processed bread, now with natural ingredients, right? And it, and it just got watered down and it meant nothing. So when we talk about sustainability uh, issues in coffee, maybe we should talk about a looming coffee collapse, right? So that it becomes more urgent. But I think that fundamentally we have to change it from an ethical choice to a business choice in order for the business to for the industry to respond. I also just want to comment on what you said on uh, like going to a farm and we take a pretty picture and uh, no one has any idea what actually the issue is. Like, I trust you, and it seems like everything is, is good. And no one can really difference what we are doing compared to, uh, yeah, the commodity market. And, like, it's so much more complex than that. Like, it's also it's like a, another conflict about, like, erasing the producer uh, to that we are at least, like, we're coming from colonized structures where it's not a poor producer situation where we actually are uh, on the same level and want to, to present them with, with the pride. And so it's not only, like I think that many of us want to be even more honest when we're out there, but it's also people that, that we're working with. And how do we say that, wow, uh, now they can actually have clean water without being, yeah, and the reality of, of how it is out there, or that people are, are worried for the security and being threatened. And like, it's, it's yeah, I, I'm ready to be honest for, for my sake, but it, it is a challenge how, yeah, that, that is people that we're working with. Yeah, and Juan Luis is saying it's gonna take one big player and for you, it could be, we need a critical mass of my segment of the specialty industry. And it's, it's yes and, you know, it's both of those things. I mean, some of these large companies have data. Uh, they are not pressured at all to, to, to talk about that data, to put that on any public facing documents, packaging, whatever, marketing materials. So it's got to come from somewhere, you know, it's got to, we have to make it more of a norm of what we talk about. But do you think that all the specialty coffee producers or specialty coffee roasters would be able to put their price on the packaging? I don't think that's for me to decide. <laughs> and I don't think that's, again, I don't think it's the right indicator all the time, right? It's complex, it's complicated, but, you know, the, the discussions around it are changing and need to change. And how that manifests, we can only hope to see in the near future. Again, definitely, as, as you were saying, and, and I'll second it, as even if it's not one of the major players, as you get smaller players buying into transparency and building transparency into that model, you may reach that critical mass that eventually, you know, one of the big mass movers is gonna say, okay, I better do this now similar to what you were just re, uh, referring to with the you know, natural foods movement. I mean. Do we have time for one? Any questions? Thanks. I'm Niels Haak with Conservation International. I have a question for fair trade. I think in the, the current times is the time when fair trade should kick in, right? So I'm curious to hear from you, how have you seen the demand for uh, fair trade certified coffee over the last year or so evolve? 
is is the industry stepping up and buying more fair trade coffee or what's going on can you say share anything yes and no so we see the the coffee industry of course is competitive right so we're starting to see that people who would normally like if the if the market's at 120 it's not that big of a stretch to to reach 140 right but in an 89 90 cent market there's quite a stretch there so in the EU, where there's a, r a real recognition of fair trade and an embrace of its values, you know, there's really not much of a market dip. I think that maybe Colleen could talk a little bit more about the U.S. Overall in the system, I, I think we're at about a 15% growth rate over the last year. So, you know, it's being supported. On the U.S. side, uh, we're seeing year-over-year -year growth, double-digit growth in the demand for fair trade. And we're seeing that most of that demand is coming from the private label grocery segment, right? And so it has very different, you know, quality specs, but at the same time, that's, that's like a kind, kind of difficult to, to wrap your mind around when you're not looking for such a high quality coffee, but you're still 40 cents, 52 cents over the market. There really is more of a demand for that verification system. And so that's, that's a lot. I mean, for private label brands, you own the brand equity, but you own the risk, right? And so that's becoming much more of that risk mitigation strategy more than anything else. What we're trying to do is then change that conversation around, well, why does that minimum price exist? Because there's still a lot of pressure when, it, when we're talking about raw material costs. We're trying to change that conversation now to one much more focused on the living income conversation that, that Fairtrade International is, is uh, starting. The other thing, I, while this person's going to ask their question, I think a really important part of this conversation is that we tend to focus on the price implications, the economic implications. But what we don't talk about enough is about how the social fabric starts to erode in producing countries, right, with a low price. We're st we see more and more incidences of child labor, forced labor, degradation of environmental standards. And even if you don't care anything about that, the other thing is that coffee quality goes down. Uh, hi. Thank you for the, for the panel. I think that it's been very interesting. I just wanted to make a comment. And is in the 80s, when we started to talk about specialty coffee, we made it as for specialty coffee to only be valuable or valid of a higher price if quality was there. However, with all farms, and I think Mr. Juan Luis knows very well, all producers of specialty coffee can't always only produce specialty coffee. So no matter how professional, no matter how much technology, no matter how much everything we do, there's still going to be a part of that coffee that just did not meet the requirement. And I just hope that with all of this initiative, and I understand that specialty coffee should be the leader, it's still not okay that non-specialty is okay to be paid below minimum wage or below living income. So it is important that specialty coffee takes this lead, but we should not forget that not super specialty coffee also deserves to be paid properly. And it's not less okay that we are not. So, so yeah, I, I hope that we are the leaders for this, but I really do believe that we should not forget that the rest of coffee that is less good for whatever reason still has a cost of production that should also be met respectfully to the producer. So thank you. What a great way to end. Thank you, everyone.
That was one of the many lectures we hosted at World of Coffee Berlin last June. Remember to check out our show notes for relevant links, including a link to worldofcoffee.org for more information about this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA's podcast 2019 World of Coffee Lecture Series, supported by listeners like you. Thank you for joining us.